Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And Ann, we're less than a week out from Cannes, so obviously we have to get into all of that. But first things first, we need to talk about James Cameron, because Cameron somehow managed to become part of the news cycle this week by virtue of all these reports surrounding the gazillion dollars that Avengers has made at the box office and reports that it has now passed that landmark box office achievement of Titanic, as well as Avatar, to be the highest grossing movie ever. And a lot of snobby Marvel fans saying, take that, Cameron, online. So let's look at this from a few different angles. One is whether or not these claims are accurate. And two is, why all the hate for James Cameron all of a sudden? It's really interesting. The Avatar thing is a fascinating thing because you can see it on Twitter. You can see that they, they, everybody's rubbing. First of all, there was this Disney Fox announcement about the the new um, schedule that that we you know is coming up, and it's just overwhelming. Uh, the but they've pushed Avatar back again, and so there were things on Twitter with all the. First, it was going to be 2014, then it was going to be 2050, 60. You know, it's like it's 10 years late at this point. You know, it's not going to come out till like 2021 now. And, and so I almost feel like Avatar is, is a distant memory for a lot of people. But I there's mean, also the negativity attached to it, which is really interesting. This is well, one of the most that. extraordinary, successful movies of all time. And so is Titanic. Now, I have been hearing more people defending Titanic. You know, I'm one of those people. I love well, Titanic. Titanic. It spoke to a different demo, even though it went to all the, demos. Well, they, the did, they went to all demos, but I thought the thing about Avatar is that it has a different kind of profile. And don't forget, in the months leading up to when this thing came out, a lot of people thought it was going to be bad. And I almost feel like the memory of the movie itself. A lot of people thought Titanic was going to be bad. Well, yeah, but I think this Titanic, is a repeated scenario that goes on and on. But and Titanic on gets appreciated. Cameron. But I think I agree with you. But Because he delays, because he's I, late, because he wants it to be the that. best movie ever made. There, there's more than, but the distinction between the Avatar and Titanic relationships, I think, is actually kind of fascinating because Titanic has one, a larger nostalgia base associated with it, I think, and also it, it can be appreciated as camp, whereas Avatar is seen as fantasy and people slag on fantasy much easier. This one, it's, it's a I have no movie. idea what you're talking about. I am. People, I think you're just fantasizing right now. I have no, no idea what you're talking people about. Titanic about is second. one of the great movies ever made. It is a romance. Well, it is, I don't it agree is with true. that. And it's, and it's also yeah. got extraordinary visual effects that were incredibly but, groundbreaking at the time. What I'm saying about Titanic is not that I think it's camp. It's that I think people tend to have. I don't know who you're talking about. I think that people tend who to have a thinks different. Who that Titanic is camp? On what basis are you saying this? Listen to the argument that I'm going to make. People tend to look at the romantic genre in a different kind of way. They this look is not it, just you know, a romantic genre film. It is also an I, enormous You don't have to defend Titanic to me. Adventure I film and I, I true the, disaster and everything on, else. Hang on. I appreciate the craft of Titanic as much as anyone who would be. It's not about not that. To. I'm talking about what you're talking about. I'm saying that there were men who were fascinated by the story of Titanic as much I, as women. I'm and not it is denying, not just a romance. I'm not denying that. What what I'm saying is is that I think that type people are kinder to Titanic with time because it's a kind of storytelling that is easier for people to be kind to. 
and that fantasy and science. I agree with that. But where does that, Camp that, come in? People, a lot of people look back on Titanic as Camp because they're remembering it as a love story between attractive people and they, they, the, the way that it affects them in an emotional kind of a way. And they're, they're remembering the Celine Dion song and they're remembering their teenage years for a lot of people who are on social media. Which this doesn't tell me about anything here. about Camp. Why is Titanic seen as Camp? Well, if you go back to Susan Sontag's amazing essay, Notes on Camp, camp tends to be something that people take into their own and treat it as something that it is not. So Titanic has become essentially a meme of sorts that a lot of people, specifically people who, who watched it when they were teenagers, treat as almost like a punchline, like, oh, I thought DiCaprio was so hot when I was a teenager or something like that. And so they have a very loving relationship with, with it, irrespective of you know, what their relationship might be with it now, whereas something like Avatar is in more recent memory and it's being remembered as a blockbuster. So they look at it as a movie that is loud and silly and not particularly written well because they remember all that stuff. And Everybody also likes to say that Cameron doesn't write well. Yeah, and, and it's and, also... And he, he's a visual filmmaker. It's he's one of the great easier. visual filmmakers of all time and the dialogue is frankly irrelevant. Yeah, it's not, but it's also easier to slag on blockbusters. That's a, that's a common sort of thing that people right. do. So know? what we're talking yeah. about now is that the Marvel universe in the uh, euphoria over Endgame and, and it's extraordinary numbers, which are extraordinary in real life. They really are. It, it is, it is, it is, you know, absolutely breaking records. It's the fastest to get as far as it's gotten in, in record time. It's the biggest opening of all time. These are all real things, but what, what's happening is that it's starting to break records. Um, and Disney is claiming records that it's not breaking. I mean, you have to imagine they pre-wrote those press releases before the movie even came out. Right. I mean, it was just, they're well, not it's surprised. part of the it's part of the hype, but the but the but the point is, and Tom is, is Tom Brueggemann, our box office guy, is is up in arms about this, and it's it's true. Imagine that you tried to buy a house today for the amount of money that it cost to buy a house, you know, fifteen years ago. You couldn't do it, right? So it's 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 about adjusting the figures and coming up with what inflation. Uh, rates are and and figuring out what Gone with the Wind, which is the number one grossing movie domestically of all time, um, could possibly be in 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 you know today's dollars. And when you do it that way, Endgame is is still you know if you look at the domestic grosses on Box Office Mojo adjusted for ticket price inflation, Endgame is like thirty nine. You know, it's but still I mean, it's off, still it's, coming up. It's still moving up. And it could, in fact, get past Avatar, but it will never get past Titanic. Well, That's I, I mean, point. on some level, it's I also think that the, the reaction it has to make to like a billion this, more dollars. But the reaction to all that. this negates something really valuable here which is people are trying to make it seem like Avengers is, is somehow, you know, this superior commercial product. But it's also the culmination of 21 prior movies and a massive kind of studio driven marketing effort to build this world in the enthusiasm. Whereas something like Avatar, you know, maybe it's underwritten, but this guy like invented new technology, an entirely original story. I mean, it's the fact that that movie even is the high bar for box office achievement is so astounding. Avengers just kind of brings it back to familiar terrain. Like, oh yeah, franchise movie 
with this kind of hype behind it can make this sort of money. Remember so that Avatar was one of the things that it that most, I mean, at least Titanic was based on a story that people knew about. Avatar was, God forbid, an original, an original yeah, that think. spawns a franchise. And I, I, I feel for Cameron. I know that Cameron's own personality is often working against him. He's the guy who went up on Oscar night, Titanic Oscar night and said, I'm king of the world, you know, which nobody ever well, maybe let that, him yeah. live down. But, he, you know, there's an aspect of Cameron, you know, he's smarter than everybody and, and, and you know, it, it manages to do this over and over again. But there seems to be this kind of weird rooting against Avatar thing going well, he also, on. He um, had had a quote that has resurfaced lately where he said basically that, people should be doing more original stories. There had to be more than superhero stories for the future. This is movie. part of what we're so, ricocheting yeah. back on. Him. That's sort of, and the thing is, it's like people from the MCU. Who, it's like he was slagging Marvel specifically. And, yeah, and people who invest in these stories and these worlds, you know, they, they take that kind of stuff personally. Now he doesn't need to care about those people until, you know, it, it actually affects how much people are willing to give him the time of day. So it'll be interesting to see how, that evolves. It seems like it's just a random kind of a blip and then it'll go away. But the news story around, you know, Avengers beating James Cameron is so histrionic. You know, I mean, the guy is, is hard at work on like a gajillion different sequels to this movie. So the cumulative grosses of those things will be in, will be something to look at as well, especially because we don't know what the future of the Marvel Universe looks like. And they're, they're not necessarily going to have an Avengers level Marvel event movie during the time when the the Avatar movies come out. So this could be an ongoing back and forth thing for the next decade, for all we know. Well, they're going to be actually alternating over the holidays on this Disney Fox schedule, Avatar and Star Wars movies. And so they are giving the Star Wars movies some some room to breathe. But we have one for uh, 2019. And then uh, the avatars start in 2021, and then they, right, they move it up here. So yeah. you have you have these. The, the, it's a really scary schedule because they've put in some of the Fox movies, most of which are hanging on to the same dates, except for Ad Astra, which, as we had reported, is moving to the fall. But you have you know these these. It's it's the it's the revenge of of the Disney labels, you know, Pixar movie. Marvel movie, Star Wars movie, Avatar movie, and and Cameron's Avatar really sort of stands out in 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 contrast uh, to this kind of uh, formulaic uh, filmmaking. That of course, going what's going to happen is when you when we're you know knee deep in five Avatar movies and we see how he expands this universe that so far is just limited to one movie. It's going to feel like formula because then it's a series. It never. And- well, it's it's the first time he's really uh, you know embraced that. I'm I I can't well, help it, a but he's really he's well he didn't stay you know after the ter- first two he didn't he didn't stick with it but it, it, it and the and the series declined rapidly uh, without him. Um, uh, I'm curious to see what the new one is like because of course Linda Hamilton is back and and Cameron is on board yeah. on some level so it should be it should be. Uh, much better. Um, it's interesting to think about how much they're investing in it at this point and that they're keeping Star Wars going because we had been led to believe that there was going to be some sort of pause with these movies. Now what we don't really know is 
what the next phase is going to look like after the trilogy is concluded. Well, Ryan Johnson's supposed to come back. Right. We don't really know what that is. I mean, I think that there is a, a very reasonable argument that's been thrown around that George Lucas himself has pointed out, even if Star Wars prequels were not good, he was trying to tell original stories off of what he had created in that universe and build it out with some new characters and so on and so forth. Whereas the most recent movies have been essentially playing off nostalgia for the earlier films. And that on some level, they probably have realized that they need to start creating fresh uh, value for this IP. So the Ryan Johnson thing is really interesting because we don't really know what he pitched to them, but it seems like it's new characters in the Star Wars expanded universe. So it's like the Which Star is exactly Wars what they need. I mean, yeah. they've basically exhausted everything that's old and they need to go forward with yeah. new things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm as excited about the JJ Abrams movie as anyone else. Cause I loved what he did. Um, and I like what Brian Johnson did too. I'm always it's just open the to solo being, uh, one that was such yeah. a disaster. Yeah. Well, that was embarrassing because they got such bad press for it and stuff. I mean, the thing is I'm, always open to these movies being surprising. I, I enjoyed the J.J. Abrams one for what it was. I thought the Ryan Johnson one was super exciting because it really felt like a filmmaker getting in there with a lot of new ideas. Agreed, completely. Um, so they need more of that. And the idea is it seems like they scared off a lot of these interesting indie talents that at first were going to get hired the way that Marvel has picked up. Well, Lord and Miller had the last laugh, I yeah. have to say. And that was a missed opportunity. But I do wonder if they can maybe win back that possibility to bring talent like that into their, you know, toy box because there's so well, many Kathleen Kennedy, who I have a lot of respect for as a producer, is working very closely with Lawrence Kasdan. And he seems to be defending... Um, in a way, the 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 canon, and so I often I have wondered if if they don't need to open things up a little bit over there. Yeah, I think it's that's sort of the underlying sense that a lot of people are getting is that as long as it's being run by people who have such a loyalty to what they built in the first place, it's they don't have the willingness to to you know kind of play around with it a little bit. I mean, I will say that it's. When when this does happen, it usually doesn't go well. You look at Spielberg opening up Jurassic Park and like those Jurassic Park movies that he didn't direct are not as good, but Never. they still make money, but they're still not as good. I mean, it's just well, like- Well, I enjoyed the Bayona one. I actually thought J.A. Bayona did a good job. It was so ridiculous though. I mean, it's I just- I enjoyed his, 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 his ability to create real menace in close quarters. But I also think that when you have a real auteur visionary create a commercial phenomenon, it's very hard to just replicate that thing they created because it really is coming from this artistic uh, inspiration that you can't just copy and paste. And it's, it's an intangible thing, but you see it when people try and you saw it with Solo, you see it with certain things that are being done now on the franchise level. So it, it's a very interesting moment to consider what the what the next decade is going to look like. But, um, you know, I guess we have to keep, you know. We have to go to Cannes in order to see Cannes. things that have nothing to do with Hollywood. Well, it, yeah, it's sort of like a purge. Although Rocketman did get an R rating, so that gives us room for hope. <laughs> yeah, right. At least we're going to see some nudity. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. They're not going to sugarcoat his... his well, one thing. would hope. My God, what's the point? All right. Elton John, for like, Christ's sake. You're going to make a, a PG version of Elton John? I don't think so. As a tangent, I saw the that 
The Farewell, which we've been talking about since Sundance, got a PG rating, which is really smart because the R rating signals something to people they think not just you know, in terms of quality, but in terms of the kind of storytelling experience that they want. And PG, which is so underutilized when it comes to movies for older people, is is like a really smart marketing move because it tells it tells you that it opens the movie up to basically everyone. Whereas Rocket Man will be, you know, a different kind of clientele, although obviously a lot of people are gonna see that movie. But um but yeah, I mean so let, let's talk about Kant. So we we've talked about Rocket Man We've talked about Quentin Tarantino being this late addition. I'm sort of curious now that we're we're really heading into the thick of things, how we think it's going to go overall. Because you know this festival tends to exist in a bit of a bubble. When you're there, it feels like the most important thing in the universe. And then you talk to people in the outside world, and they maybe know about one or two movies. Well, everyone really grants hard. that Tarantino being there is a super important thing, and of course. Um, I can't wait to see that. I mean, that's just above and beyond everything else. And I definitely want to see, and it just brings a certain star power to the whole thing that they needed. But I also want to see the Almodovar because I just have an instinct that that could be because of its autobiographical nature. One of the, um, you know, it could be his Roma, if you like, you know, well, it yeah, could be I mean, a, a really the, special movie that could break out in a big way. Also, he's, he's been big at Cannes, obviously, for, for ages, but never won the Palme d'Or. And this is a very personal movie um, that... Uh, so, well, and you've got Banderas yeah. playing him, and it playing goes him, back you know, to the love of cinema when he was a kid. And, and, and uh, it's worth pointing out, this movie has opened in, in Spain, and people ever do like it. So there is... Um, there is a conversation about it already, which either is good or bad because it maybe it's too well known going into it. But you have to assume that you're allowed uh, to open in your country of origin before you enter yeah, the competition. And, and, and the the jury this year is very, 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 very filmmaker centric. It's kind of hilarious because you have somebody was telling me the the most amazing thing about watching the jury uh, deliberate this year will be listening to. Yorgos Lanthimos, Pablo Pawlikowski, Kelly Reichert, Alice Rocker, Robin Campillo, and Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu talking, and then Elle Fanning in the middle of all of this, you know, like bringing her perspective, which is like, you know, she's younger than all of these people and she's an actress, but it's sort of fascinating because it's like, on some level, maybe she's the secret ingredient because everybody gets a vote in this situation. So it's not like all the filmmakers can just talk over the young actress and it doesn't matter, which is not to say they will per se, but I, I could see that being an intimidating situation for somebody to be in. So I'll be really- I'm just curious. glad that they don't have all the women on the jury actors. I mean, in the past, they, that happens, it tends to be the case. So at least you've got some women filmmakers arguing their point of view with the male filmmakers. Yeah, Elle Fanning is, I mean, she's been to Cannes before, but she's not a star like Kate Blanchett or so. so I mean, sometimes they get these, these sort of- Or Catherine Deneuve or Isabelle Huppert or, yeah, right. she's, so she's a younger, uh, less, uh, I mean, she's a sophisticated girl. We'll, we'll but see. you don't want to dismiss her intelligence in any way whatsoever. No. I'm just, I'm just saying she's that just I think that contrast. Yep. And it's something we will continually talk about because the competition unfolds like a narrative. You get a few more- you know, things per day, films per day, and that accelerates conversations about what the palm might get, and the jury's experiencing that along with you. So there's so many different unknown variables here. I mean, yes, we want to see what Tarantino does. What's the Terrence Malick like? 
you know, what's the Jim Jarmusch like? All these kind of notable directors, the Darden brothers who have won before, Bong Joon-ho with Parasite. But then you have a bunch of people who have never been in competition before, including the four women directors. You have Ira Sachs. I mean, there's so many different. Which Tony picked up already. Right. And HBO picked up the Asif Kapadia, uh, the sports documentary, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah. Based on exactly. the, how much I liked Senna and, and Amy. So you can read into that a little bit because it, it either tells you that they have really high hopes for these movies or that they just saw them as having potential beyond the can bubble. Obviously, they kind of need both. But I mean, you remember Sony picked up Capernaum last year for quite a lot of money when it was in competition at Cannes. It did not win the Palm, but played very well. And they did get it pretty far along, but it was a very... Well uh, nominated. But it but they made a big play for that movie at Cannes, whereas now it seems like, at least for now, they have two... Uh, They're in much better shape ahead of Yeah, time. going into the festival. So that's at least probably allows them the to... The early rent. word I'm getting is that there isn't that much um, to buy at this point. Of course, the Terrence Malick is, is a question mark. Yeah, I think the Terrence Malick is a real question mark because... From what I understand from people I've spoken to who read the script, it really is a narrative feature. It has a traditional story. Of course, Malik is notorious for tinkering with things to the last minute. So how much it actually ends up that way, I don't know. But I think we can all agree that as mesmerizing as Tree of Life was, his first two films were are his best films. And, and they adhere more clearly to narrative structure, at least from a character and storytelling Sample. Yeah, this is based on a true story, and uh, and we'll see um, we'll see how how closely it hues and how how conventional the narrative is. There's a lot to find out there. We just have to see it. Yeah, it's it's true, and, and there there are filmmakers. I want to see what he does with Matthias Schweinarts, but um, I don't know if that's a leading role or a supporting role. It's not the title role. Yeah, and the thing is, of course, can audiences are always so charged, so you never really know if. Um, you know, this movie, because of all the pressure being placed on it, will get booed or slammed, whereas in another context, perhaps at a different sort of festival or without a festival, it would have had an easier launch. So it's it's risky, but at the same time, the decision alone to put this film in competition, considering that many of his last few films have not been at Cannes at all, is something that, that should be at least a tentatively good sign. We'll see just exactly how that plays out. Well, what's interesting is that at least not so far, uh, I think the distributor, no one's picked it up so far. So the distributors are waiting to see how it plays bottom line. Exactly. And and that's what has to happen there. So there are movies opening this week. We haven't seen Detective Pikachu, which is okay. We'll get around. I I will freely admit I have no relationship to this property. I tried to play that Pokemon Go game for a little while and it seemed like a terrifying direction for technology. So I stopped after a day outside of that. No, I was addicted to it for months before (laughs) I abandoned it. Bad news. But the movie, I don't know. We'll see it whenever we see it. The effects look interesting. I liked that the DP of that movie was responding to the bad effects in Sonic. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, how much mediocrity can you stuff into the news cycle in one week? But uh, we have seen a documentary that's opening this week called The Biggest Little Farm, which premiered at Telluride last fall and was picked up by Neon. I think this is a really fascinating story, the the kind of cliched notion of, of 
the city dwellers who decide to realize their dream of moving out to the country and opening their own farm and, and kind of living the, the, this very um, tranquil life on the frontier. And of course, it goes wrong in so many ways. It's really well captured. The voiceover is a little too much at times. It's not perfect filmmaking, but I like that they capture or they encapsulate so much time and really show you, you know, it's not easy to live off the elements. You can't take that for granted. Well, I went to the farm um, and visited. It's in Moore Park, which is within reach of, of Los Angeles. And it's a very dry area. And there's this beautiful, verdant, extraordinarily visually pleasurable farm. Uh, by the way, they sell to Erwan. So it's out of our price range, <laughs> most of their stuff. The most expensive avocados you've ever, ever seen. It better be um, damn good. But it was interesting because the filmmaker had given up on um, on filmmaking. And he really was uh, with his wife trying to get into this um, uh, other experiment. And in the course of it, uh, documenting a lot of it with his own cameras, uh, he saw a way uh, to tell the story. And because of his background in nature, uh, cinematography and documentaries, he was able to c- come up with these great storylines about Emma the pig, who, by the way, still lives. And uh, <laughs> and the, the, the interaction with the rooster and, and the coyote that was uh, coming across the, the fences in the middle of the night to, to kill the, the, the animals. And so you have a lot and, the, you know, the drama of throwing all the ducks onto the farm to get rid of the snails and all the different ways that they tried to to use um, nature to combat nature. And and, and it worked. And it's, it's a wonderful movie. I actually think it's going to be a very big success. It's one of these, uh, almost like Mr. Rogers, uh, you know, uh, uh, the kind of movie that makes you feel good, that well, gives you hope. Well, a year after Neon had a lot of success with Three Identical Strangers, that was their big success for the year overall, but it was also a really good documentary success story because it had such a compelling hook to it. And I feel like this one is kind of going in that same direction where it's like, how many of us have thought about, you know, that 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 dream of escaping the insanity of the city and just, you know, living off the land? And, and we live in this really fragile moment where, you know, climate change is obviously very real, but it's also invisible to many people on a day to day basis. And I feel like what this movie does is it gives you a very up close and personal look at what, you know, just just how complex it is to take care of the planet. So, they, so it's a talking point, kind of a movie, and very accessible, very visually satisfying. Whether it that continues into award season, I think, I think it does. Uh, I definitely do, and I also think um, that it's interesting that the filmmakers decided to go with a theatrical. They could have gone another way. They could have gone a different route, and the theatrical meant a lot Netflix. to them. <laughs> Yes. It meant a lot to them in the same way that it meant a lot to the people who made Crazy Rich Asians or something. In in other words, it it becomes a much bigger talking point. It becomes something global. It becomes something that that could make a difference and change people's lives. And, And that's why they wanted it to be in theaters. Also, you have to think about how this movie might play in different parts of the country. I mean, you could play it in rural America, I think it's very relatable. I think it's relatable to families. I think it's relatable to just about everybody. So I don't see that. That's why I'm saying it could be such a big hit. I don't think this is going to be limited to the to the blue cities at all. Right. 
the hoity-toity city dwellers, although we get to appreciate it. It'll start it as an art house release, obviously. But Neon right. is pretty ambitious about what yeah, they want they, to accomplish. You see that trailer everywhere if you go to a multiplex. Right. Interesting. So hopefully that pays off, at least better than it did for uh, the Beach Bomb a couple of weeks ago. But speaking of documentaries, Eric, um, one of the things that we've, those of us who are paying attention to the woeful art house uh, specialty market uh, box office is that uh, again and again, it's the docs that are doing better. And you, you know, we, we reported that Molly Thompson from A&E got poached. Um, by Apple to run their documentary division. And, and now, she's staying in New York, which is cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and a lot of good relationships there. And of course, I mean, the edge here is that because, you know, Netflix and, and HBO and all these different companies are all in the mix looking for good documentaries. And now, you know, Sony Pictures Classics is saying we are in the documentary business now. So you have to... Uh, so. I love it that um, MTV, Chris McCarthy, president of MTV, scooped up after a year of, uh, of, of being away from HBO, where she was for decades and decades, 80-year-old Sheila Evans to run their new documentary division. Yeah, it's fascinating because Sheila, well, Sheila is one of these characters who it's like, you almost forget that she's a documentary person because we don't necessarily associate like glamour and you know the life of the party and and upscale kind of you know fashionista types with the nonfiction arena but she has brought this kind of exuberant flair and done it in a way that has obviously galvanized the documentary scene in the last few decades in a major way i mean she's made it possible for so many different kinds of documentaries to get made and to find audiences obviously not the most experimental ones but in terms of you know, films that are really about issues that get people talking, that, that you know, have, can uh, can really affect change and so on and so forth. She's a really influential figure. And when she, you know, quote unquote, retired from HBO, there was this real open question of, well, who's in that, who can fill that gap? So it turns out that she can. And I she love is, she is just, she's, she's so funny. I talked to her yesterday on the phone and she was in a car, of course, and she was going over, you know, and the guy in the car was so used to taking her to, to, to the HBO place, you know, that that's where he was taking her and she wanted to go somewhere else. Anyway, she is, and, and she is going somewhere. I like the idea that she could be um, energized and, and, and excited by reaching to a younger demographic and, she's going to be focused on specials, which quote unquote, so there's a one-off as opposed to series. And she's going to really try to, to get into uh, the 2020 election and, and try to, to uh, affect change. She knows that it can have an impact on people, these movies, and she's going to go for it. Well, they already have this Beto O'Rourke documentary that I saw at South by Southwest. And that was made and completed prior to him even announcing his presidential bid. And what's, Intriguing about that is that since then, the field has gotten so much more crowded and you almost wonder, it's like, where do you even start with that? It's a really fascinating creative challenge. I mean, I'm sure there are documentaries already being made about all these people, but... Well, Netflix know. has the AOC one, obviously. Exactly. So that, so Knock Down the House is all over the world on Netflix and, uh, and then this Beto thing is coming out. But in terms of other candidates, I mean, Kamala Harris has an interesting story, you know, Marshall... 
Curry's been talking about doing a sequel to Street Fire with Cory Booker. I mean, there's got to be a good Joe Biden story to put together. He, he's a fascinating figure, and, and Bernie Sanders. And he's hitting Hollywood this week. He's got uh, fundraisers right and left, one of them hosted by Jeffrey Katzenberg. You know, you know the drill. That's that's Joe Biden you're talking about, yep. of course. Not, yep. Not Bernie Sanders, who wouldn't be caught dead in that kind of world, but um, or at least he lets them come to him, as it were. In any case, it should be an interesting period of time, and I am looking forward to, yes, taking a break from some of the bigger movie discussions to go into can mode, but also to see how the rest of the world is talking about us, about us politically, and about us um, in terms of the... It'll be a breath. It'll be a good, fresh breath. All right, I'll see you next time I see you, Eric. It will be in our little apartment. I will see you in the cramped quarters of the south of France. (laughs) Safe travels. See you later. 